You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by Greg Glessinger, and he's a member of Jury Outdoors. And I'm just going to give you a just a few seconds to introduce yourself and give the listener listener just a little bit of context into who you are and maybe what you do at at Jury Outdoors. Sure. So, uh, born and raised in Papillion, Nebraska, which is a suburb of just outside of, uh, of Omaha and, uh, moved up to Wisconsin. Oh, it's been about 24 years ago. Now I can't believe I'm saying that 24 years ago and, um, really didn't start whitetail hunting until I was in my mid, mid twenties, 23, 24. Um, I was a bird guy, meaning we were born and raised behind bird dogs. We did um, pheasants, quails, and a lot of waterfowl when I was growing up. Um, obviously, being born and raised in Nebraska, we had uh, aunts and uncles that were farmers, and we had plenty of access to that type of game. And so that's what we did. And then when we, I got moved up to Wisconsin, my wife actually uh, introduced me to uh, my future brother-in-law at the time, he was just obviously her, her brother. And, um, he took me out back one day and he said, you ever shot a bow? And I said, no. And that happened. And after one arrow flight, she looked at me and she goes, you don't need another hobby. And <laughs> since that moment in time, it's been my number one hobby and it's been growing ever since. And I get more serious by the day. It's just, uh, a true addiction that, uh, it's really kind of hard to describe unless, you know, the viewers out there know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, it's, it's an itch that just never seems to go away. Yeah. It, it's something that never gets sufficed. You never can have enough of it. You can't, I don't care how often you shoot or where you go. It's, you're always looking for the next, the next trip or the next opportunity. Yeah. So maybe you could give us a little bit of, uh, background and, uh, how you got involved in the hunting industry and really with some of the OGs of, of videoing and, sure. um, I think they've kind of in a way pioneered the, uh, what we see as modern, uh, hunting media and how'd you guys get, how'd you get it started with them? So, uh, you know, it goes back, oh, probably goes back about 12 years ago. Um, Brian Thompson, who was a jury team member at the time, uh, is a Madison guy, Wisconsin, and I don't live far from Madison. And we're at a deer show, and uh, I met him just purely by chance, and we hit it off, and we started talking. Two guys obsessed with whitetail and bow hunting, and we, we became friends. And um, long story short, um, he he told me that uh, you know, uh, have I ever looked at buying some ground or leasing ground in outside of Wisconsin? And I said, yeah, I said, I always want to go to Iowa. And, um, long story short, um, that happened. And, uh, I got to introduce Mark through Brian and 
from there, um, it just kind of started build a relationship with Mark a little bit. And he, uh, he asked me if I ever filmed and I said, no. And my first year, um, knowing him, I shot a one, I think it was a one, just short of 163. I think it was like 162 and like six eights with wow. my bow. And that year it would have been the largest whitetail shot on the team. And he said, you know what? I really want you to start filming. And I, I kept saying, no, I really don't have interest. And that went on for a couple of years. And then one year he said, you know, what if, what if, uh, what if I sent somebody your way and had somebody film for you? And I said, you know, okay, I'll give it a try. And, um, shot a 154, 155 that year. And then he said, you know, it turned out wonderful. He goes, would you do it again? And he kind of noosed me into saying yes again. And then I think we shot like another 162. And then um, he said, you know what? I really want to make you a full-time team member. And that's kind of where it all started. And that was about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. So is, is Drury Outdoors working for them? Is that your primary job? No, no. So what I'm in, uh, I actually do a few things. Um, I'm in the medical radiology business uh, full-time um, is what I do uh, to make a living. And Jury Outdoors, in, unless you're part of last name Jury or you're part of the studio team, which is there's probably, I'm going to shoot it to hip and say there's eight to ten guys that are editing and marketing and all those type of things. Those guys are all full-time employees. The other, I'm going to call it 38 to 40 of us that are so-called team members, we're all uh, basically um, a team on, on, on DOD, but we, we get paid um, by the hunt and by production. So if you don't produce, it's one thing to harvest an animal, but you have to meet the expectations of how they want it to be produced. And then um, if they like it, they'll obviously um, pay us for it. If they don't, then um, it doesn't meet their expectations. They won't. So they, they run a really, really amazing tight ship. Their expectations are top, are, are top notch for all the right reasons. Um, but, you know, that's why they're so good at what they're doing, celebrating the 30th year in the business, which is unheard of in the outdoor world. Um, they do everything first class. And if you don't want to be part of that and that motive and that direction, uh, they just, you know, don't really have room for you. Yeah. How quick would, or how much do you see the growth going? Like, are you guys picking up a, a few guys a year, or a couple? What does that look like? You know, um, I know that, uh, there's always a long list that always has interest in coming on. And I know that Matt, uh, jury does a few, uh, phone calls and emails and has dialogue with a few of those guys but once they get into the expectations and what it takes he said 99 percent of them just don't don't carry you through um because of the the quality and what we have to do to meet their expectations he said most guys just don't don't carry through with it um and if you do get carried and he says hey uh we'll give you a shot they'll they'll put you on like a trial period for anywhere from one to three years and they'll watch your footage, see what you do and how you produce it and how you come off on camera before they make you a full-time team member. So there's a process that they vent people through before they, you know, go, go all in on somebody. Because you got to remember, you know, they have a lot, of, a lot of allocation 
of sponsorship dollars that obviously they have to allocate to us to fit us in obviously the sponsored gear, PSC, Nomad, you know, Rage Broadheads, Winchester, et cetera, that they only have so many dollars to give to the team members. And they're only going to give those dollars to guys that they know are producing. So you got to really kind of produce before you get, I call it inside the camp campfire and welcome to the, to the team before they start wasting a whole lot of time and energy, just because it's just so expensive to allocate funds to someone who is, hasn't having a proven track record yet. Yeah. And I'll, that makes total sense too. So they guess they hook you guys up with like some nomad gear, some analogic oh, stuff like that. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. You, uh, you get all that stuff, you know, you can go on the, the, uh, drew outdoor webpage and see all our sponsors, but yeah, we get, we get so much per year. Um, and trust me, it's, it's, they treat us more than fair when it comes to gear. Um, it's like on another couple, three weeks. Well, any day now, I guess it's middle of July. It'll be Christmas at my front doorstep about two or three times a week with new boxes. So, um, it's, it's a fun time of year when, when all this new year comes and you know, it's, uh, no matter how old you get, you never get tired of getting new gear. We're all, we're all little boys when it comes to that type of, you know, conversation. Yeah, no, I got my, uh, I got some hunting boots, uh, for Colorado today in the mail and I got my, uh, a Sitka backpack the other day and Perfect. man, it's just, it's so fun to just open stuff at the door, especially new hunting gear. But that's, <laughs> that's funny that you say that you're, uh, doing stuff around like radiology cause my mom's a radiologist actually. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, she is. That's awesome. So, so what we do is we do, uh, we work, uh, with MRI, PET CT, CT and digital mammals. And, and we, sh and we, most of the stuff we do, we put them in back of semi coaches and we make them mobile. And then we also do fixed projects with anywhere from Mayo to Cleveland clinic. We can go right down the list to the largest hospitals in the country to the smallest hospitals. There's, there's really no box that we fall into. We work with all of them. And yeah. uh, I've been doing that for, oh, 22 years now. That's cool. Yeah. She does x-ray, CT, MAMO. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, she has like four or five or yeah things that she can do. She actually, that's funny that you say that she worked in like a, uh, I think it was a, like a CT scanner that was out in a trailer, and so she was like isolated out there, and we always go see her and stuff. So that's really funny that you do that. Dang, it might have been one of our coaches. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Hard to say. So what a what advice would you give to someone that is maybe younger or maybe sure. in their early twenties trying to get into the hunting industry. Is it this, uh, I see this trend of, of like, uh, you know, like you said, you gotta, there's this vetting process and you do have to yeah. prove your value first. Yes. You have to provide value first yeah. before you expect anything in return. And just yeah. doing the podcast, I've, I've, I've seen that, man. It's like, yeah, it's really surprising how many companies that you, you, you can message all day. Can I be on your post app? But the first time you, you know, make, art for them for podcasts you podcast with them and distribute them they're like yeah i'll give you something for free it's kind of crazy but sorry to go out down that rabbit hole but what advice would you yeah. give to someone uh just well, trying I'll, to break in i'll tell you a story that i think is going to answer your question uh, and, it's, and it's it's actually how when i when i first moved to wisconsin i was hungry for anybody who would teach me or show me i went to seminars i read books i read articles i was trying to find anything to be to basically sharpen the craft of a better whitetail hunter and uh every year in madison they had a show called uh 
the uh, Wisconsin Dare and Turkey Expo, and it's always the the last weekend of March or the first weekend of April, depending on how the calendar falls. And it's a three-day event, and they bring in um, seminar people to the who's who, and they have they have seminars starting from f- uh, Friday at like uh, noon, going all the way um, through like seven eight o'clock on Friday, and then they start at eight on Saturday through seven o'clock on Saturday, and then uh, 8 a.m. on Sunday through like four o'clock on Sunday. And so I would literally take off half day on Friday, and I would I would sketch out all the seminars that I want to go listen to, and one of those happened to be Ralph and Vicky and Solero from uh, Archer's Choice. And after the seminar, uh, he was walking out of the seminar, and I said, Ralph, I said, you got a minute? And he said, sure. And I, and I go, I go, um, are you en route to have lunch? And he said, I am. And I said, if I buy you lunch, could I pick your brain? And he said, you bet you can. So <laughs> I followed him to the lunch line, got him lunch. We sat down, and, and he said, I'll give you 30 minutes. Well, 30 minutes turned into an hour. And I'll never forget this. And I give this credit to Ralph because for whatever reason, when I left that, everything started to click, which was I asked him all kinds of questions from, you know, food plot strategy to food plot architecture to what states, everything we're going down. And and he kind of summed it up um, at the very end of the conversation. He said, Greg, he said, you know, one thing I've learned from doing this my whole life is you're only as good as the ground that you hunt on. You cannot hunt something that is not there. And I pushed away from that table, and that was my biggest aha moment. And that was when I was in my mid-20s. And it changed my scope of how I approached whitetail hunting, which was I need to be a conservationist first, which is create the habit, the habitat, the water, the food, the cover, all that stuff first and then let these animals get to age and you will create what you're trying to to harvest which is mature animals and i was doing it just the opposite i wasn't i was hunting i wasn't much of a uh a land steward and once i figured that out is when my hunting career changed so maybe i don't know if i answer your question properly but you know it's taking me you know a couple decades um of learning the craft to get to where I am. And I'm anybody who is willing to talk, um, I'm willing to listen. There was many times that I was sitting at Mark's, Mark's house and there'd be eight or 10 guys in the room. And this is back when this is 12, 13 years ago. And you know, there'd be the, the who's who of the team in the room and I'm listening. I'm not saying a thing. But I'm taking mental notes on everything that those guys are talking about and, and what and when and, and how and where. And, and one time Mark said, you know, you don't, you don't talk much. And I said, I don't because I'm trying to learn. And I said, I've got nothing to add to these conversations because these guys could whip me in a whitetail world in a second. And I said, I'm blessed to be in the room and I'm here to learn. And you'd be surprised if you hang around the people with the same passions that you have that are better than you, it's amazing what you will learn. So my number one key is hang out with people with the same passions, um, you know, pick their, pick their brain, find different strategies, and you'll mold them into your strategy over time, and you'll pick 5 or 10%, go, you know what, I like that or I don't like that, or that makes sense. Or, and then before you know it, you know, it's amazing how good you become. 
but you're only as good as the people you hang around with. And, and I'm a living proof of that. No question. Yeah. That's, that's one of the most interesting things I've ever heard from someone talking about hunting. You're only as good as the ground you hunt on. Cause that's something that I've seen so apparently, I mean, I've noticed even hunting growing up, man, it's been like your uncle's got a, you know, 90 acre field, but only five acres of it are huntable and they're the deer coming off someone else's property. And then like your buddy, your buddy's grandpa's got a thousand acres and you know, he kills a big deer every year and he's like, I'm a better hunter than you. And you're like, no, you just get more opportunity. Right. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. You bet. And, And, and when I started going to different States and that's the other thing, I wish I would have done this sooner. Um, which I haven't really started to travel to different states until the last, oh, four to five years. And when you travel to different states, even if it's outfitted hunts, it doesn't matter. If you can financially afford them, go do them for one reason, which is when you go to different states or, or, or an outfitter within your own state, if, if that's what you can afford, I would advise that too. Because you go to these outfitters and one, you're going to hang out with a bunch of guys from all over the country that you never met, but you got one thing in common, which is hunting and chasing whitetails. And after, you know, the sunset goes down, that's when the learn curve opens up and that opportunity has that to a huge um, lesson to start throwing ideas across the dinner table or watching TV. And you'll be surprised what you'll learn. And you also get to see how the outfitters doing things. You may dislike them. You may like them. um, But you're going to come out of there a better hunter, which is you're going to change your point of view next year or the next place you hunt based on what you just learned and when you go to different places in different states and different terrains things hunt differently and the more situations you can find yourself in the better you will be because it just it sharpens your tools so much quicker and faster and that is one thing that i could strongly recommend to any young hunter that if you can get out there and do that sooner than later you will shorten that learn curve tremendously yeah. I mean, so I got a quick brain buster for you. So for example, I kind of, I had some properties that were sold or lost permission to some really good places that I could hunt when I was younger. And I kind of found myself in this position of, you know, either go home to hunt my 40 acres during the weekend while in college. I mean, I've soon since graduated college, but anyways, this is my situation last year. And, uh, for all the gas I spent, man, driving two and a half hours one way to hunt public land, like in southeast Oklahoma, do you think do you think it'd be worth it more to save most of that money and go on a really really nice hunt um, somewhere that's guided to get a better opportunity at a bigger deer? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Um, you know, I've I've done a lot of outfitted hunts in my life, and some of them I would not recommend, and some of them I'd recommend over and over and over. Um, I'm not here to put an outfitter in a bad name. It's just that some guys really take their craft very seriously and some of them don't. If you're going to vet them out, vet them out very well. But yeah, if that's the case is probably what I would do. I would save the money and make it more of a destination vacation type situation and go all in and sit all day and go at the rut time or, you know, whatever, whatever, depending on where you're going to go, figure out when is the most optimal time when deer are on their feet and go during that period. Um, we're going to Oklahoma, matter of fact, for the very first time. Um, and uh, this is going to be new to me. And so I did a ton of research. And it sounds like from the research I've done and talking to people and 
it's that that early that call it the eighth ninth tenth through the 20th of december is the primal time of rut slash deer on their feet activity um so that's when we're going um am i right i don't know but i did a ton of research and it seemed to be the common thread so that's what we're going to do are you uh are you going to name the game outfitters no i'm actually going to liberty ranch Liberty um, ranch where at in oklahoma is that uh well it what it is it's a private ranch i'd have to I just got everything done with them. I got to look up the town. I can't even remember off the top of my head, which is embarrassing me to tell you that. But they, uh, it's a private ranch that they just opened up to bow hunters only. And there's no guns. And I think it's about 7,000 acres. And they're taking limited, limited guys just to see how it's going to go. So they're, they're getting their feet wet. So it's going to be interesting um, how this is. I'm trying to help them from afar. They're, they call me and ask for questions. And we're... You know, it looks like it's going to be a, a wonderful place. Um, they got some some really nice deer down there. So being a new guy to Oklahoma, this is going to be an interesting trip for us come mid mid December. Yeah. So you guys are uh, you guys are going in mid December? You said. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. The uh, man, it's interesting. I think that you're spot on with uh, the timing of rut. I killed my biggest my biggest buck yet was like 130 inches. And, uh, I killed him on November 11th, my bow nice. and man, that, that eighth, ninth, 10th, they're starting to get riled up, but man, right around Thanksgiving leading up to Thanksgiving, if you can be in the woods, yeah, there's some really, really good action, but, uh, yeah, no, that's cool. Well, welcome to, to Oklahoma. I hope you guys get it done. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Um, Casey and I are both going, so we both have tags, so it's going to be interesting, um, how it shakes out, but we're sure going to give it a try. You yeah, know, and so, I think what's different, what's different now too, that you mentioned earlier is, you know, how did I shorten the learn curve up? You know, back, you know, 20 years ago, the internet didn't have the information that's on now. We didn't have podcasts. We didn't have a whole lot of things that are out there today. If a person really wants to learn, there's, God, there's hundreds of people with conservation podcasts to, to podcasts like yourself all out there talking about one topic, you know, which is whitetail hunting because it's predominantly the, the most hunted animal out there. And you can just sit here and drown yourself with as much information and fast and quick and easy. So if I had to go to seminars and read articles, now everything's online. I mean, you can watch YouTube clips for 15 or 20 minutes and show and, and figure things out. So the information out there today is so much more prevalent and so much easier access than it was you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, there really is a plethora of information. I mean, and I think there's a, a big gap between executing on the stuff that you know, and then, you know, but I, I guess on the other hand, if you, something really is important to you and I've spent so much yeah. money on dumb stuff, like, you know, it's, stuff that you don't need or trips that you go on with your friends. That you, I, I probably could have went on three or four guided hunts by now. Like right. I, I spent money last year going on an antelope hunt and, it was it was one of the cooler things that I did, and it only cost like seven hundred and fifty bucks. And I was like, "This is cool." Like, I don't understand why I don't do this more often. You know, there I can you give go. Someone you figured it out. A little bit of a little bit of money, which man, shooting a big deer, there's you can't put money on that. There's, I'll give you everything in my wallet to, just to get a <laughs> just to get a shot at one. But no, that's cool. I'm always interested to see how people utilize outfitters because a lot of people give outfitters a bad rap, and you know, they do. 
But uh, I, I tell you what, I went out to QRS Outfitters this past year, last fall, and shot the mule deer, and it was the most amazing, beautiful place I've been in a long time. And if you're looking for antelope or mule deer, holy buckets do they have them. And they're reasonable priced, great people, great lodging, great food. There isn't a, a negative thing I could say. And it was flat out amazing. I would go back. It's just our schedule this year is so full. So we're already talking about two or three years down the road, potentially going back. Um, it's just our calendar is so far booked out. I don't know when we're going to fit it in. But um, it's one of those places that I've been that, it's not that it's a long ways out there, but once you get there, you'll be glad you went. It's an amazing place and you'll see more game and have more opportunities. If you don't execute, it's probably something you did because it's, it won't because the game's not there. I can tell you that. What, uh, where was that at exactly? That was by Muddy Gap, Wyoming. Uh, uh, the outfitter was called QRS. What was the what's the difference between hunting muleys and, and whitetail besides the the spot and stock style? Is that what you guys did? Yep, yep. That was episode one of Critical Mass that just aired here. What have been three weeks ago, um, two weeks ago? Um, yeah, it's pretty much spot and stock. You got to be really on your game. I mean, we uh, you know prime example is you know when I packed knee pads, Casey looked at me and goes, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we got to take them because who knows if we're going to need them because we're going to be crawling and." And that's one thing that's overlooked more often than not is not having the proper gear and not being able to shoot a long ways. Um, I'm talking with a bow, that is. Uh, and know your range, put your practice in, know what your your efficiencies are, and don't don't exceed them. Because when you get out in that big, big, wide open, big sky country, you know, 40 yards is not very far. And when you're crawling 150, 200 yards, you know, sometimes that it seems like that that 60 to 80 yards seems to be the, the magic sweet spot more often than not. And you, you better be able to, to figure that out or you're going to miss out on some opportunities. Yeah. I have a, I got a pair of pants that are made by Sitka that have knee pads. And I was thinking when I first got them, I was like, there's no way that I'm going to enjoy these. And like, they felt kind of weird at first, like walking sure. around with, but man, the first time that I was stalking antelope and I got down on one knee, I was like, oh yeah, that was worth a hundred bucks easily. <laughs> we actually bought, I bought, um, construction knee pads. Oh really? Got, like that, like that what painters that, and everyone use. That use for tiling. That's what yeah. I bought. And they're a little pricey, but when you crawl 150, 250 yards, let me tell you, you don't think about the $45 you spent. Let me tell you. Um, and they were, I don't, could we have done it? We could have, would have been painful. Yeah. Cause we were, we were crawling through an alfalfa field that just got cut. So everything was really sharp and mm -hmm. it was digging in through our pants. So without them, it would have been really, really tough. How far of a shot did you end up getting on that muley? Uh, it was a good, it was a good poke. It was around that 60 yard range. Um, it was a good poke, you know, and some of these guys will say that's too far. Well, you know, I guess it all depends on your abilities and how well you, you put your time in. And, and that was not any concern of mine, but I practice a lot. Yeah. I got, man, I got within, uh, within 80 of a mule or of a, a pronghorn last year. And my buddy ranged and he was like, uh, 78. And I was like, there's no way. And he's like, no, yeah, it's 78. And I was like, that looks like 200 yards away. And like it's, it's a big it's that big big sky country when you go west it, the depth perception is completely different than the Midwest. 
Yeah, it really is because like you're used to, well, that tree line at the edge of the food plot, that's 40 and then 10 yards past that. And, you know, that's as far as they could be. And then like out there, like it messes with you. Like, does he really look that small? Is he far away? Like, what's the deal here? It is. It is. And that's why having the right gear and optics and range finders at your disposal, you know, on your hip is critical because those things, they, they look so much bigger or smaller and it, the mind plays with you when you're out, out West. And that's for any game. I don't care if it's mule deer, elk, it doesn't matter. Yeah. How much was the, was that hunt? If you don't mind me asking, I'm really interested. That's my second thing that I want to get. I'm going after an elk this year in Colorado. It's right around 4,500, I thought, 4,500 or 4,750 or something like that. Yeah, that's not bad at all, actually. And that's meals, that's lodging, um, that's not the tag. Um, But, you know, it's, uh, well, from where you are, I don't know how far it is, but for us, it was like an 18-hour drive. So Mm -hmm. um, we hauled out there, and in one day, we drove all through the night, which is fine, because when you got two drivers, but and try to save on a hotel stay, but, um, you know, you can always bust it up in two days if you wanted to. Yeah, man, that sounds fun. Did you, did you feel like you could, uh, kind of pick and choose like what you're shooting? Like you get plenty of opportunities. Cause I know, man, we, where I, where I grew up, it's like one opportunity. If you miss that, you might as well just go home for the rest of the year. We shot them on day three and we had a lot of opportunities on day one and day two. Um, you know, we had, we were chasing some, some bigger animals. Um, and we let some smaller ones go, um, because I've already had a few mule mule deers and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to shoot something smaller. I want to shoot something at least equal to or bigger just because of, you know, obvious reasons. But, um, we had two or three opportunities before we had the one that we harvested. So out there, there's a lot. And, and with a gun, it's a no brainer. I mean, it is, if you get a chance to go back and watch, well, Critical Mass will air again that episode. Um, that'll air in uh, last week of September, the first week of October. Um, and you'll see it. Um, you'll see the amount of anal- antelope or the uh, mule deer. It's it's uncomprehendable. Crazy. Yeah. That's, so, that's funny that you mentioned that because it's so funny that we choose to hunt with a bow sometimes because, like, Man, when I when we went antelope hunting, it was like me and my buddy could have both if we would have had rifles, we could have both tagged out with the below 200 yards in probably 30 minutes. And it's like with a bow, we're sitting out there at 120, popping the decoy up. We're like, please run at us, please. Yeah, right. No, it's just you know, it's it's what you want to do. You know, the challenge of the bow hunting is is something that, uh, as Ted Nugent says, you know, the spirit of the arrow, and it's so it's so. Uh, emotional good and bad when you when you achieve something it's so hard that when you do achieve it it's it's a heck of an accomplishment because it's not easy to do i mean you're you're hunting whatever you're hunting i don't care if it's mule deer whitetail elk whatever your your game of choice may be you're hunting something that lives 365 days a year they get up every morning and their only thing they have to do on their mind is to survive until the next day that's their goal and when you think of it that way and you're trying to outsmart something that is they live in the wild every single day, they know their environment, they know the smells and their nose is 10 times better than we are. That's if you said that to somebody to go do that, they're going to go, why would I do that? That's an impossible thing to achieve. And oh, by the way, here's a stick and a string to go do it with. They're going to go, why would I do that? Because you're not yeah. going to win. 
you're going to fail nine times out of 10. But that's the beauty of it. You know, if it was easy, it wouldn't be any fun. Yeah, that really is. I mean, that's I've heard it summed up really basically to I I go out in the wild and their environment. I try to kill things with a sharp stick. And it's like, (laughs) I mean, in modern bows, it's a little bit it's more technologically advanced than that. But I can't imagine people, you know, going out with an actual stick than that has a string on it. And they're actually shooting things with a sharp stick. Yeah, it's true. Back, you know, back in the caveman days, that was that was what it was. You know, and they and they survived and they did it. We're we're lucky to be in this era. It's a lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable. It's still hard though. I mean, you know, I, I tell some of these guys that uh, I've got a a relative who's just starting to get into the sport, and he was just here the other night, and he's picking my brain. He goes, "How do I give me a short way to shorten my learn curve up of just hunting? How do I sharpen my skills?" And I said, "You know what." I said, did you hunt much last fall in the late season? He said, no, it's too cold. And I said, okay, I understand that. But here's the difference. I said, if you want to go sit in, uh, you know, mid-20s, low-30s, high-teens here in Wisconsin, and there's snow on the ground, and I said, if you want to go kill something that's tough, go try to harvest a, a mature doe. Late-season doe in snow, in cold, is the most difficult thing to do when you think about it, because they're so smart and so worried from getting pushed around and hunted all year long, it is an accomplishment to shoot a, a mature doe with a bow come late December, early January. It's hard. Yeah, it is. And, and if you can do that, you'll figure it all out and you'll start shorten that learn curve up on a mature deer. And the only way to start, you know, obviously I didn't start shooting 200s out of the box, but you know, when you start making mistakes from getting out there and the more mistakes you learn, that's when you learn, you know, it's no different than playing baseball. You don't, you don't learn anything when you win. You, you definitely learn something when you lose or, you know, if in business world, you're chasing a contract and you get your butt kicked in the, in the CEO or CFO room is you go back to the, the business table and you go, what do we learn? And we got to adjust these. That's when you learn and making mistakes is the best thing. Prime example, Derek, he was nine, drawing his bow back on a doe, his first, his first doe, potentially his first uh, bow uh, harvest. And he drew back, and we we're in a, a pop-up uh, muddy blind on the ground. And he drew back and the doe was about 18 yards in front of us. And he drew back and when he drew back, his thumb drew across his front of his chest as he pulled the bow back. Well, the front of, he had a kind of a, a semi-loud vest on, and when he drew his thumb across to draw his bow, he dragged it across his chest, and that doe just came out of her skin. And he looked at me, he goes, this is impossible. And I go, lesson number one, we can't do that again. And he, since that day, he hasn't done it. Yeah. So you got to go through those curves, because if I sat and tried to explain it to him, he goes, I don't believe you. But then when he experienced, he goes, oh, my gosh, Dad, these things are so smart. And I said, well, that's how they that's how they survive every day. They know everything that's going on around them. If they hear something that's not right, they're gone. And he looked his eyes was priceless. He looked at me like, I can't believe this just happened. Right. They're half laughing because once you start dragging across the chest, I'm like, oh, this this hunt's over. (laughs) Yeah, you know, but only through your experience. Right. And I think the more you hunt and the more yourself put yourself out there to potentially fail, 
even though you may come home with an empty truck, let me tell you, you're going to come up with a lot of lessons learned that you can't replace. And, yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing. No, I learned my bit. I don't know if you're much of a turkey hunter, but oh yeah, I uh, I was. We went to Mississippi this last year, and man, we had four toms, four ropers. Every one of them had an over a ten inch beard that looked like a paintbrush. Nice. And uh, we had them roosted, and we 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 made the mistake of setting the decoy up right in front of us. If we would have set it ten yards past us or any of that, it would have worked out just fine. But we we set it up right in front of us. And four of these dudes come strutting in, just gobbling, synchronized gobbling for like 20 minutes, just gobbling their head off. They get four yards from the decoy. And, you know, it was a little bit before when they were they were mating. So they kind of just sat out there and they were puffing up. They're they're just kind of being friendly. They're like, come here, you know, come hang out with us. Walk over here. Like, I'm, I came all this way to you. And, like, take a step towards me. And, like, the decoy's just standing there all silent and we're not calling because they know we're right there then. And, uh... If we would have set that decoy 10 yards past us, we each would have harvested a turkey that day. And like that's just a lesson that you have to learn through experience. And I would never would have known that if I if I wouldn't have been out there. Now it was a very costly experience. Like it cost me, <laughs> you know, a thousand dollars to go learn that. And that's really annoying. But like me and my buddy were talking about it. We we're like, man, next year we could come in here and we could kill one easy. You know, we could come, we could kill one easy. We know exactly where they are. We didn't have the right choke tubes either. We could only shoot like 40 yards. That that screwed us one time too. We had like eight or nine opportunities at birds right. that week and For sure. never killed one. And that's a well, costly but, lesson. But you walked away of being a heck of a lot better hunter than when you walked in. Yeah. I would I would never I would never like trade that experience because it's like great memories and like not even having someone film it, man. That's just like a picture that's ingrained in your head and it hurts because yeah, it, it, your friends, your friends don't know that, right? You go back, you're like, oh, we could have, and like, oh, whatever, you know, like, right. yeah, you had eight opportunities. You're like, no, I'm serious, and like, right. it's just, it's such a fun game, man. It's just it that's why I love hunting. Like, oh, I'm the world's best elk hunter. It's like I guarantee you're not the best deer hunter. I guarantee you're not the best turkey hunter. No, well, then you're not the best waterfowl hunter. Like, there's, it's a game of progression. Like, it's always, right. always getting better. And once you get great at something, you can be a great mule deer hunter the next one. Like, it's. That, that that part excites about me excites me and I just get really I feel really sorry for people that don't have a passion like that that can fulfill them their whole life you know yeah I agree one thing about hunting though it's constantly changing you know you got weather fronts you've got you know the age of the animal you've got the habitat that's constantly changing on a yearly basis there's eight million or millions of different variables that change what those things do and to say that it's the same year year after year is is a foolish thing to to even come out and try to explain because it's just it's it's so heavily in, ev evolving it's amazing and the minute you think you got them figured out they're going to teach you something else and show you mother nature's going to get you um it's the ultimate chess match there's no better chess match that i've come across it's as challenging and equally as rewarding when it does come together yeah one thing i think about too is i love the the technology and the stuff that changes in the sport like I think Onyx changed it for yep. Onyx changed the game for yep. hundreds of thousands of people. Like yep. now, you go from I'm a public land hunter. I got a I got a paper map and I got it wet and now I don't know where I'm at. And yeah. now it's like people are hunting the farthest place they can go. Like you're running into people two to three miles back in there. You're like, how do you know about this? And it's like, dude, I saw it on the map. You know, yeah. and it's like 
it's things like that come along every once in a while and just completely shake it up. Analytics is another one, you know, just comes well, in. Then it's you like got, uh, the DeerCast app, the jury came out with. That, I mean, I that, use that. I use that this year, man. Amazing. That thing is insane. Well, it's you know, I, I got to commend Mark and Terry and Matt and Taylor, those those guys at the at the DOD team. I mean, you took and you took. Well, Mark and Terry's thirty years take that times two apiece. So you're looking at sixty years of knowledge that they they basically put into an app for everybody to pick their brain. And you know what was so nice about being part of the DOT team, uh, just to be candid with you, is anytime I had questions, Mark always said, "Call me or text me." And and one night it was uh, early November. This goes back years ago, and I was sitting next to him having dinner, and his phone was blowing up with text message. I mean, blowing up. And I said, is this like this all the time? He said, when it's deer season, Greg, it's like this every day. <laughs> and I said, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm just asking, they're asking questions. They're trying to figure out tomorrow's where to hunt, what wind, what plot. And he says, it never stops. He goes, it's no different than you when you text me. And I said, well, obviously I'm not going to do it anymore. He goes, no, please do. So it actually came to him and, 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 Terry, because they were, they were doing it anyway. Yeah. To a small group of people. And they said, why don't we just share our knowledge and put it in an app where everybody can enjoy it and everybody can take advantage of it and, and learn from it. And so it's, it's so simple. It's genius. And now with, um, the new update that's coming out here in about a month, if not sooner, it's taken it to a whole nother level. And then, and, um, they continue to, to keep come up with new ideas to make this thing fine tune and make it even uh, a better tool for the average hunter. And we live and die by it. I mean, it is the go-to for, cause we did a beta test a year before it was launched, all of our team members. And it was amazing of how accurate that thing is. Amazing. Yeah. I used it. I used it this year to determine what weekends I was going hunting. I mean, I was in college and, you know, I went to Oklahoma State, so we were big into football, and oh, nice. uh, my fiance at the time was like, you know, you should stay for a game, and I'd, I'd check the app, and it was like, poor, <laughs> poor, poor. I'm like, I would love to stay this weekend with you, and she's like, you would do that for me? I'm like, absolutely, <laughs> and, and I, it was funny because I went and checked my trail cams uh, that next weekend, and I was like, I'm so glad I didn't drive down here and go, and uh, man, it, it saved me not only like probably a, several hundred dollars, but a relationship and the <laughs> she's my wife now so it's it's right. even funnier now right. but yeah it it saved me so much time and it's it's extremely accurate you know it down is. to the the movement part man it it's is. like this is the peak time of movement and it's like if it said great on that app i didn't care if i was eating you know dinner with the pope i was like i have to go i i've got to get out of here i know it's yeah. going to be great hunting this evening and it really i don't think i went out a time where the time was great and i didn't see a deer that's amazing. And they actually tweak the formula. There's an al algorithm that they use, and they don't even tell us because I, I don't want to know. Um, but there's several points that they're following that then are weighted um, to tell you if it's good, great, or whatever. And they even tweaked it again for this new update that's coming out in 30 days or less. And Mark believes and Terry believes it's even better and more accurate, which I find that hard to believe because it was so good last year. And they said they tracked it almost – so often that they tweaked it a little bit and they think it's going to be better this year. So, you know, which I find incredibly amazing because as you just told the story, 
you know, the average guy only has so many kitchen passes to get out of the house with kids and family and jobs and all those things. You want to maximize those opportunities at the, at the most optimal time to hunt. Yep. And this is what this is going to do. So why not take advantage of it and use the tools in, that you can have? And they're going to have three versions, one at uh, zero cost, one at uh, $9.99, and then the full package is going to be at $19.99 when they release this new update. Um, but it is something that, in, uh, in all honesty, I think you're borderline foolish if you don't download this thing on your, on your phone. I mean, it, it really is. When you're talking about how expensive our gear is and all this type of stuff, to go spend another $9 or $19.99 is, you know, that's not even a pack of broadheads. No, yeah. that's not even, yeah. I mean, for those expensive broadheads, man, it's like one broadhead. Like you yeah, shoot and miss you know, one time, you just you spent thirty bucks on that arrow and that broadhead, so you might well, as well you got break the app. It down, <laughs> you look at the cost of a carbon arrow. You know, carbon arrows now are one hundred twenty bucks a dozen. So call it call it twenty bucks an arrow. You throw a broadhead at at plus or minus ten to fifteen dollars a head, depending on what head you buy. That's thirty bucks to thirty five. You put a nocturnal knock on the thing. You know, that's another two or three bucks. You're all over almost forty dollars an arrow to thirty five, depending on the head you're shooting. Mm-hmm. So it's very true. When you look at you know ten to twenty dollars, that's nothing, and that's that's only one time a year. So when we were beta testing this thing, they're like, "Well, how much should we charge?" And I'm like, "I don't know, but it's priceless because you're so invested in time and energy and effort and fuel and all those things that you do." What's another 10 or 20 bucks? Yeah, absolutely nothing. Half a tank of gas, if that. You know, and oh, by the way, you get to take it with you. It's on your phone. So yeah, it's just, an, and, and if you, I don't know if you know this, but if you go in the app, you can change the location of where you want to have the, the forecast and what you want to, you know, far as the good and the great and what day you should go hunting. I don't know if you know that, but you can change the location. Yeah. Um, and then lock it in. And it's, it's just, it's so user friendly. It's such a tool that if you're not using it, I, I don't know. I don't know why you wouldn't. No, I used it. I used it literally to choose. So like where I was away in college, so two and a half hours away from home, but I was two and a half hours from home, but I was also two and a half hours a completely opposite direction away from the public land that I like to hunt. So, I mean, that was a big decision. Like, it wasn't like get down to one place and you can go just drive right up the road to the next. No, it was like a weekend decision. So, like, I would use that sometimes to determine whether I was going to go home, go to one spot, go to the other spot. Is it raining? Is it hot? What's the movement like, time of year? All those things. And, like, the I don't even know how many different pieces of, like, data it analyzes. I think it's, oh, with so many different situational factors. But, man, it, it has saved me a lot of time and a lot of money. I know that. Yeah, we a prime example. We were in we were in Missouri last year, and we had a warm front coming. And I looked at the app at like it must have been two or three in the afternoon, and we had a huge cold front going into a spot that we had a place to go in Kansas. And I looked at Casey and I said, "We're leaving." He goes, "What do you mean we're leaving?" I said, "We're going to Kansas right now. Pack up." And he goes, "Why?" And I said, "Look." I said, we got this front coming. It's going to hit Kansas. It's hot as heck here. The deer cast says it's going to be great. Let's just go. It was only a three-hour drive. Oh, yeah. So, so off we went. And did, did we kill? Uh, Casey ended up killing killing one that airs, I think it airs, uh, this coming Tuesday. 
Um, so it paid off. Otherwise, we'd have been burning a couple of days in Missouri with hot weather and no luck. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to maxing your time away from home. And, you know, once you put value on that, I guess everybody, you know, does that differently. And then it's kind of neat. You can you can change the parameters of the app that if, if you say, you know, the peak ruts, you know, no- November 3rd through the 11th, you can move those parameters within the app to adjust those um, those uh, data points as well. So you have free to customize that as much as you want. Yeah, no, it's going to it's going to be a it already is a really cool app. And I saw that last year, like they were posting like 100,000 people had already downloaded. I was like, dang, man. I mean, that's going to be it's going to be huge. It's only going to get bigger, too. So definitely excited about that. But I want to get into get into how you are harvesting these big deer consistently, man. Like, what are you doing every year? What's your preparation look like? And how does that uh, end up translating into you shooting big bucks? Well, you know, preparation meets opportunity. Um, that's without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, we, we put in a ton of work on the ground that we hunt from timber stand improvements to control burns to warm season grasses, um, food plots, obviously, um, water holes. I mean, we, we do everything now, you know, it's taken me when I was at the Iowa deer classic this past spring, uh, a young hunter approached me and says, man, if you could tell me, you know, in five minutes or less, what are you doing that's changing how you hunt? And I said, that's a fair question, but it also, it's, it's kind of tough to answer. And I said, because it's taken me, you know, about 15 years to get here. Um, and it's just a slow learn curve. I can't tell you what I did yesterday that changed me shooting a, you know, a 160 to, to a 203, but I can tell you what I've been doing for the past 15 years that put me in that position. And I think that's the part that comes back to land conservation, letting young ones go, which is extremely difficult to do. Um, but if, if it does happen, um, and you get lucky, um, and mother nature's kind and they let them, you know, get older, that's the huge part of it. And every time you let go, I mean, more often than not, a whitetail at three and a half years old, most people are going to shoot. If they get to four and a half, they're really going to shoot them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I understand that. But you can't shoot you can't shoot a 170 if you shoot that deer at a 150. Um, and that's a lot. It's very hard for guys to do that. And age is a huge thing. And then having, obviously, the the conservation and the right habitats and other and the food source and giving them the right food source. You know, I, I learned, you know, just recently when we went through all that, um, drought, we had a bunch of droughts and we were losing food, food plots. We we're trying everything. And we figured out the clover was the most, um, drought, um, uh, food that we could put in our food plots that could handle the, the weather the best. And if, my whole goal is to make sure that they have food 365 days a year and they don't leave um, our farms. And when I started doing that in paying attention come January and February, when I would go back there to shed hunt and all those type of things, there's no food. I'm like, I've, I've given them no reason to stay. And that is when I started learning that is when things really started to change, which is I've got to make it so good for them that they're really not going to want to leave. 
and when they don't leave and if I don't shoot them, hopefully they'll, they'll stick around and, and get older. And that's a key thing. And when you go into your farms and it's January or February and there's not a lick of food, they're going somewhere else and it's not on you. And that's what you got to figure out. And that's, that's just time intensive and planning and then making adjustments and obviously controlling the deer herd and shooting does and all those type of things is a part of it. I mean, we shoot too many does to even mention. I'm talking a lot. And that's to keep the numbers down and also keep the mouths off the food plots. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a 365-day, um, I guess, passion and obsession. Now, do we work it at that, that, you know, 365 days? No, not every day. But am I thinking about it or tweaking things? Yeah. Are we prepperizing? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think the habitat and the food and the water is key number one. Um, you can't stop deer from jumping the fence and going to the neighbors, but you can sure slow them down. And maybe by the time they do jump the fence, it's dark. And if you can achieve that, you're going to start aging your deer. And when you start aging your deer, that's when things start to get big. Yeah, I think what you have, the approach that you take is really holistic. And I think I think a lot of people have the approach of one month before season, I'll start putting that food plot in and then it'll be good for you know, good for October. And something that I've seen happen with me, man, is I plant, you know, a kind of a last minute food plot and then November first, man, I get a first frost and it's like, ah, uh, now it's just a field with some grass. It's too small. You got too many deer. It's too small. One of the two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the 365, that's a, that's something that I'd love to do. And that, but that starts out with having a piece to manage. And a lot of people don't have pieces to manage and like, or, uh, trying to find a, a big enough piece where you can plant food plots or a lease or something long term. It's, it's tough and everybody's situation is different, but that's, that was, that's something I've kind of always told myself. I'm like, man, the first time I get a property, I know how I'd manage it because you can't manage a property when your brother and your uncle and your dad and everyone else hunts your same stand. And like I I ran into a situation last season where I'd been paying for this corn and I was hunting this certain blind out on my property. And my brother who doesn't even hunt was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to go set that blind in the morning. And I was like, no, you're not. He's like, why? I'm like, because I've, I've been hunting here all year. I was like, you're not going to hunt here on November 17th when rifle season opens. And he was like, yeah, I am. I have permission too. And I'm like, oh my God. And I, I just can't wait to get away from situations like that and like actually get to put some of this knowledge that everybody has about food plots, about mineral, about, you know, watering holes, keeping them on your property. I, I can't wait to start doing that. I will, I will give you a, a suggestion I learned a few years ago. Well, it's been longer than that. But if you, if you have the opportunity to lease a farm and you like it and, and you say, hey, you know what? It's risky. I don't want to go on a long-term lease because I don't know how it's going to hunt and the animals are really there. And obviously, you can put trail picture, or trail cameras out there um, and run them if, if the landowner lets you before you ink the page on the contract. But here's a suggestion, which is if you ink one year, and then in the contract, you want to say, hey, I want first rod refusal for three, four, five, six, seven years, uh, whatever you think you can get out of the, the landowner. Because the minute you start putting time and energy into that property, it will start to change. When I'm saying food plots, um, just the enhancement for the wildlife, it'll change. And then when he sees that changing, the deer are going to get better. And in year three or year four, he's going to go, you know, I'm not so interested in in 
and renting this, uh, another guy wants it, or he's going to keep it for himself. I've seen this happen over and over and over. So get it negotiated on day one that if you're going to do one year agreement, which I would recommend, but then have the first run of refusal to back it up. And then if you can get it for five, seven, eight, nine years, I would do it because you know how much time and energy you're going to put into it. If he'll let you put food plots and so forth and tie it up because it's happened to me where we get to year four and five and all of a sudden I didn't tie it up. And now all of a sudden the lease doubled or tripled because now guys find out that we got big bucks there. They're trying to undercut us on price and everything else. Or the farmer wants to hunt it himself because now all of a sudden you created something that he didn't know how to create. Now there's value there and you just basically cut yourself out of the deal. So if that's one tip, I would definitely think ahead if you're going to do a lease. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really wise piece of advice. I mean, if you were going to get a lease, what's the minimum? I know every property hunts different. Some are wide open. Two hundred here doesn't look the same as two hundred here. But exactly. what's the what would be the the smallest lease that you would go if money wasn't an option, or if nah, it's always going to be an option? Well, if you what would just be the smallest size lease that you would take? You know, I. I've hunted some 40s, man, that were magical. Really? Um, yes, and it all depends on. Uh, well, I'll give you a prime example. I just, uh, I just bought um, a 26-acre piece, so it's obviously smaller than a 40. And it, I walked it. Um, it never hit the market. I got a phone call, and the guy said, "Hey, this thing may go up for sale. Would you be interested?" And I said, "Can you drop the pin of where it is? Because 26 acres is going to be hard for me to find." So. He drew a circle around it and he sent me an email. I said, here it is. And I said, how, how much time do I have to get there? And he said, I don't know why are you interested. I said, yeah, can you give me five days and I'll be down to go walk it? And he said, sure. The minute I stepped on the piece, I had to have it. It's got one bottleneck that hopefully is going to be the most deadliest thing I think I may have ever seen. Wow. And it's got a big block of timber that is not on the 26 acres, obviously, it's northwest of it. And this huge timber bottlenecks into this 26 and then it opens up to alfalfa fields and another farmer that doesn't hunt. There's, there's only one way in and out of this thing. Unless they're gonna go out in these big open pastures and expose themselves, which typically they don't. Um, and there was two trails in this 26 and I'm like, holy buckets. And it was a really, really reasonable below market number because the guy was an anti-hunter. Had to, He just wanted to get rid of it. There's no need for it. Wasn't the right location. And it very well could be an amazing spot. So to say, what would I chase? Well, I just chased a 26-acre farm that I am extremely excited about. Yeah, that's super cool. I mean, how big of a factor is neighbors when you're buying a piece of property it, it has a big influence for sure you know when i go in to buy stuff um i get the plot maps around it um i do my research are they farmers are they hunters if they are um do they hunt a lot are they bow hunters are they gun hunters you know i ask the real estate agent to do their homework um i really do that's just as important as the piece that you're buying because if you're going to buy a piece of property and the guy next to you or you know south of you is banging five or six deer and he doesn't care it's it you're going to fight a battle 
that's probably not going to be something you're going to win, you know. Um, so I knew the area where this particular farm was, which, which drew my attention to it. And then when I saw the aerial, I was like, man, this could be too good to be true. And I said, I got to go walk it. And it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. That's awesome. So you, I know you guys use analogics quite a bit. If you were going to tell the listener, you know, why they should use it, or maybe you mm -hmm. can give us a little bit of, you know, context yeah. into why you use it so much. Right. Um, well, first off, they are they're How they started was they're in the, the, the cattle and swine business. That's where analogic core business is. And they do all kinds of things, chasing the better herd of cattle and, and hogs. And they have so many um, scientists up in Minnesota that one of the guys is actually a, an avid deer hunter. And he goes, you know what, we can just tweak this formula and address it to the whitetail herd and we'll fix and enhance their their lives just like we're doing with swine and and cattle so this thing is backed by science I mean, these guys are true scientists so there's no there's no marketing game behind it and once i learned once dod got associated with them and i got to sit down with them and talk to them i mean these guys were talking about stuff way above my head and um you know we we run it very seriously and very hard um, once the winter hits, call it January through, uh, we'll shut it down, uh, basically late August, September 1st. And, um, you know, is it, is it ironic that we've been running analogic for, uh, it's been four or five years now, I'm losing track of time. And now I've shot in two, 200 inch deer in the last two years. Is that, is that part of the formula? A reasonable person would say yes, because I wasn't doing it beforehand. Um, is that the only formula? No, I'm not going to be, you know, um, that crazy and make that bullish statement. But it's definitely part of our management tool, and we take it very seriously. And we, and when the when the feeders are out, we're we're on top of it as fast as we can to fill them up, um, because the protein they're getting and all the stuff to make them healthier to fight off disease. When you're letting a three or four year old go to get to five or six, you know, it's it's one more tool that we think has value and is proven by science. So why not try to do it? Yeah. So are you guys running uh, any corn feeders to like substitute with this or in addition to or is it just yeah, just so food plots, so, stuff like that? Yeah, we do. Well, for the analogic stuff, we mix it um Basically, two-thirds corn, one-third analogic on the, on the okay. 365 is what we do. And then we have mineral block stations that we have, that those blocks that they sell. Um, we have those stations as well. Um, we've, we've came up with a little trick that the vu viewers might want to take advantage of as well because, you know, let's be honest, these blocks are not cheap. And um, even though the rain does, you know, eat them away, not at the rate of other competitors, but they do, it does do it. We actually bought these rubberized, um, I'm going to call them, they're not troughs, but they're a glorified bowl that they sell for cattle. And they're probably about, a, oh, I'm going to call them a, maybe a two foot to two and a half foot diameter circle that's rubber and flexible. And we put those blocks in there 
so that we maximize every ounce of that block when it rains it stays in there and those guys are looking those things up like you know a young kid off a cereal bowl <laughs> um and so we spent a little extra money on buying these things but i guess it's an investment to maximize the return on the block and it seems to it's just something better than just putting it on the ground now you know people like putting them on the ground and, and they have you know a hole that they paw at well in certain states you have to cover that up and so that's how we came up with that idea because you have to cover that up and put fresh dirt and dig all that mineral the ground um before the season starts um why is, why is that I, it's a that's a dnr thing in iowa uh that's a dnr thing in missouri and i hear some other states are considering it why i don't know um they say it's it's an attractant that they continue to come back with so we came up with this bowl idea so that when we take away that that block the bowl goes with it there's no mineral that seeped into the ground okay yeah that makes that makes perfect sense so how what's it like to shoot a 200 inch deer man i gotta i gotta get into your mind for a minute i mean i can't imagine what's going through your mind when you're a full draw on a deer that big a once in a lifetime deer well you know it's it's um it I, I mentally shut down, and when you, if, I don't know if you got to see the critical mass episode that just aired on Tuesday when we shot extra innings, the 239 deer, you can hear Casey talking on the camera, and I'm not responding because my mind is focused on one thing, and, you know, he could clap in my ear, and I'm not so sure I would know he was there, <laughs> um, and I think that's, I, I, I will put it in one, I'll put it in a sentence that really summed it up for me. Um, the night I shot the 239, we went to Mark's house and Terry was, was there as well. And we watched the footage and Forrest, which was, which is Terry's camera guy. He looked at, uh, Terry and he said, now this is, this was Forrest's first fall was last fall as a camera guy for Terry. Yeah. He said, Terry, on a scale of one to 10, can you tell me what this, what this footage and this shot and everything about this hunt is? so I can learn. And Terry looked at uh, Forrest and he said, Forrest, on a scale of one to 10, this is a 25. <laughs> he said, you don't see this. He goes, for Greg to make a shot like he did at 31 yards. And he looked at me and he says, Greg, thanks for making the shot because most guys wouldn't. And when he said that, it was like you could hear a pin drop in the living room. Um, that is a statement and a moment in time that probably meant more equally as me shooting the 239 to have Terry say that because he's been around a lot of guys and he shot a, and, he, and he shot a lot of deer and he's seen a lot of deer die on camera and been around a lot of guys that are big buck killers too and I think that's the part that preparation meets opportunity practice 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 but when the moment of truth comes how many guys can execute it um, it's a mental game more than a physical game and I think that's the part that really is, is tough for some and easy for others. And I'm not saying it's easy for me. It's just that I really try to slow the game down and you don't have to move as fast as you think you do and make sure that when you do to do that, you know, you're ready and you, and you, you know, punch the release and, and let it go. Casey said there was a point in time and I don't remember it, but, when the 239 stopped, he said, you paused for like two, two and a half seconds. And he was like, 
Casey said, I was getting nervous he, he was going to go. And he said the two and a half seconds felt like 30 minutes. But yeah. I was making sure I was dialed in behind that shoulder and you couldn't have walked up and placed that shot any better than where I hit him. Um, and I think that's the part that people mentally get caught up in that. And you've got to slow the game down and really focus and shut everything else and just don't look at the rack. You know, um, I, I coached baseball almost, played ball at a very competitive level, and then um, coached for the past oh, 20 years. And I'll kind of sum it up with a baseball thing we always taught our uh, players, which is you don't aim when you swing the bat, you don't aim at the ball. You, you find a spot on the ball. And that's what you go after. You don't go after the ball. You go after the spot of the ball, the spot on the ball. And I think that's kind of like the old saying is, you know, aim small, miss small. And I know that's easy to say and hard to do, but it is true. So it, it's an amazing experience. You know, when I shot Major League, the 203 in fall of 17, I told Casey, I said, you know, we'll probably never do this again. Let's enjoy it. And then here we are, you know, a year later and we shot the 239 and I said this night we are going to enjoy it we are going to slow down we're not going to hunt the next day and we're going to stay up all night and much as we want enjoy it and have fun and all those things because it truly is hitting the white tail lottery it's the only words I can potentially put it in context um, it's you know a very difficult and rare thing to do let alone do it back to back but I wish and I hope that every every white tail hunter would have the opportunity to do it because it's hard to put in words. I mean, I was very quiet in the blind when I looked at Casey and I said, did we, did we 10 ring him? And he said, you hammered him. And it, it took a while for me to realize that we just achieved the goal that we were going into in the fall of 18, that this was the only thing we wanted to do was harvest him. I mean, we put all, put it, put in perspective. We, we actually took cameras off of other farms to surround him to figure him out we only have so many resources of trail cameras so i'm like you know what forget about those other small farms we're pulling cameras off of those we're going to surround this guy we're going all in we're either going to kill him or we're going to burn the you know two weeks of october and two weeks of november and we're going to come home empty but we're going to try and so we put all those cameras off the other farms onto that farm in july and august to get every ounce of, of intel we could possibly get to know when he was going, where he was going, all those type of things, so that when we got to fall, we knew as much as we could. And I think that's part of it, which is we waited for the right wind, we waited for the right pressure, um, we waited for the right time of year um, to go in there. And I said, the first time we go in there will be the most deadliest. And it was. And it's because we had so much intel on this deer that we had a really good idea where he was living. He was on one camera. We had so many cameras around him that he wasn't even showing up on the other ones. He was only showing up on one. And so we made sure we knew how he was exiting and entering the plots. And we had the right win. We went in super early so we knew that he would be bedded. So we did all those preparation things to put us in the right position that you know, the deer has to show up, of course, um, but we did everything the right way going into it to make sure that if it was to happen, it wasn't for us to blame that it didn't happen. And, and so that, that's and awesome. It, and I think that's the part that people 
really don't take everything to the nines from the scent control to walking in when we shut the shut the door on the truck and we had oh it's probably a 300 yard walk i looked at casey and i I think i said something like we're leaving this truck we're not talking we're going to walk through this warm season grasses like we're walking on ice we don't talk until we're inside the blind because i don't want anything to go wrong and it happened and i think the more you prepare and the more you think and the more you try to outsmart these things, you really have to be on the top of your game and really have to really think what you really want to do to, to achieve that. And leaving no, no, no um, stone left is, is what you got to do. I mean, prime example, we had beans next to us that was 80 yards to the west. That was a three or four acre plot. We had clover in front of us. So we had the green and the grain. We had water that we had a pond just north of that. I'm going to call it oh probably about 200 yards to 150 yards from the food plot we had just done timber stand improvements to the north in in lighting of him once we found him so we put everything in there saying hey we did everything we could do for that deer not to leave and he didn't leave now i don't know if he left at night i don't know that was he living somewhere else he could have been but he sure wasn't living north he wasn't living east and he and he wasn't living west and the only party could be living south was a small little block of timber that we stayed away from when we walked in there and we came from the east and that block of timber we were concerned about was southwest of the blind and we came from the southeast on a northwest wind so it's the details that'll get you every single time and if you think you're overthinking it you're probably not and if you have a, and if you have a buddy that you can bounce ideas off of it's even better because having two brains is better than one and if you can bounce them around you've come out with a better plan than just one guy guarantee you that yeah man i i think for this is really powerful especially for someone that i just think about to rationalize this in in my head it's like if you haven't harvested a deer even of the caliber of uh, 150 inches it's like it's easy for doubt to slip in your mind like if I got a, if I had a 200 inch deer in front of me, could I make that shot? Now, of course you can make that shot, right? Like you make that shot all the time. You make that shot on your target, on your 3d targets when you're doing tournaments and stuff like that. But it's like, I, I don't, I'm, I guess it only comes through years of mentally mental fortitude and toughening your mind and putting yourself in situations like that. But I mean, what's the difference? Do you think you could have made a shot on a deer like this when you were younger and maybe weren't as mentally tough? That's a really good question. I don't know that answer. It took me 20 years to get here. I don't yeah. know. I, and I don't think anybody, you know, prime example, when you look at golfers, I, I golf a little bit for fun. Um, but when you watch a tournament on the weekends and those guys are standing over a two or three foot putt worth a million and a half dollars to win the tournament, some guys miss them. Yeah. Some guys make them. But that's the difference between a million and a half and a million dollar purse or dropping all the way down the fourth. You know what I mean? Right. Um, the, the, the meant, and those guys could go to the putting green, the next putt and probably go 10 for 10 once the tournament's over because they're that good. And I think it's the mental game that people really don't think about. That's harder than what we don't discuss and really openly talk about. Do you think that, the ability to execute on that shot is a summation of not only 
being being putting yourself in situations like that, but also the practice and the preparation that you put in of like like making that shot almost like second nature. You know, you're like, I made the shot hundreds of times. You know, you got your hand in the right place. You're you're 100%. squeezing through your shot. I mean, you think that plays a, a massive role in it. I agree 100% with what you just said. 100%. The more you practice, the more confidence you have. The more confidence you have, the more mind you have confidence and you're going to do this. And I think that's the part that I'm not so sure people do enough of. And that is shooting the bow and drilling tacks and staying within their abilities is another thing. You know, um, if, if you can't make a 40-yard shot, why are you going to try it now? You know, all you're going to do is, is blow the deer away. So why do it? You know, and so some people think, well, here's my chance, here's my chance. But ask yourself, can I make that shot if I practice that shot? If the answer to the question is no, then don't do it. Because all you're going to do is educate them. And right. It's going to make it harder on you next time. So you're only as good as what you practice. And trust me, I practice a lot. We're, I was just shooting today. I don't shoot every day, but I do shoot a lot. When it gets to this time of the year, I shoot a lot. Do you do you do any practicing like outside of your comfort zone, like you know, 80, 90, 100 yards to help make those shots better? Yep, I go to 100 yards. Yeah, yep. that's something I started doing last year, man. And it makes 40, it makes 40 seem like you're at 20. And it's, oh, it does. It's and, the best thing. If you have the room to do it and the time to do it, I don't care. It is the best thing because when you when you really have to focus at 100 or 80, and you really have to slow down and really focus, then when you get to 20, 30, 40, it's like a it's a putt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my farthest shot on a, on an animal now is 42 yards, and I just I feel like if I got a good buck within 40 and he stops like that's kind of a no-brainer for me like 40 yards that's that's a pretty easy shot if you practice it but yeah man i I, i've definitely been implementing that into my training recently too well i'll give you i'll give you an insight to to the viewers on this one because you know i i missed if you guys watched the clip of major league which would have been the 203 of fall of 17 i actually swung and missed uh shot my first arrow and actually barely missed his 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 belly i mean it didn't cut his hair, but it was really close. And two things, one, and this is the part that I learned that everybody should really can learn from my mistakes. So you don't do it that I did, which was he was at um, 33, 34 yards for the first shot. Now, keep in mind, I am about 25, 26 feet in the air on a tree, tree stand, and it is about 14 to 16 mile an hour winds and we're in the timber. And as you know, when you're in timber with above 12 to 13 miles an hour, the leaves are really loud and the oak, we're in a big oak grove. The leaves are loud. Now, I did not process that. So in years past at that plus or minus 35, 36 yard poke, more often than not, a deer is going to drop into your arrow more often than not. So I put it right at the bottom of his his right leg and his belly. I mean, I put it right there and I released the arrow and that's where it went and he didn't move. And then he jumped a few feet and he settled down cause he had no idea what it was. Cause the wind was so loud and the leaves were so loud. He, he just knew something was under his feet and it spooked him. And, and then he calmed back down. Well, then the second shot I hit him and then he went 
50 yards and I hit him again. But my point being is I went back and I processed what I did wrong. Once again, you know, learn from your failures, not from your successes. And it dawned on me that the wind was so heavy in the timber and listen to the audio of the video that the leaves were so loud. He never jumped the string and he never would have jumped the string. And so if I would have just put it right on him, he would have just wore the arrow. But I outthought the situation. Mm -hmm. And so next time when I'm in the timber and there's wind speed of probably north of 11 or 12 miles an hour, I'm going to put it right on him. And I'm not going to think about him jumping because he can't hear it. Yeah, that's a good lesson to learn. I, I haven't even thought about that. So... You know, it's one of those things that I've been doing this a long time, and that's the first time it happened to me. And so when it happened to me, I'm like, God, Casey's like, dude, he goes, you don't, I can't believe you missed him. And I said, I didn't miss him. I aimed, I shot where I put it. And he goes, you're banking him dropping. I said, I was. And so I'm like, what, what could I have done different? And then I went back to the audio, and the audio was so loud with the leaves, he had no chance of hearing it. So I put that in my memory bank going, okay, next time I hunt in the timber, and it's north uh, wind speed of north 11 or 12 miles an hour. Don't worry about it. Just fling the arrow. Yep. There you go. The, it's a game of progression, man. And now you'll now you'll know that. I feel like you pick up. I pick up so much every year. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the part when a guy asked me at the Iowa Deer Classic, give me five tips of how you killed them. I don't know. It's 20 years of learning. Yeah, I got I got 500 tips for you on how to kill them. You know. So what, uh, I'm interested to hear what kind of, I know you're shooting a PSC bow, um, using, are you using rage tripans? What kind of heavy yep. arrow yep. are you using a heavy arrow? What's, what's kind of the setup? What have you found to that? What setup has been the most deadly for you to kill whitetails of, you know, that are getting some, some North of 300 pounds. Cause I mean, a deer, a good deer yep. around here is 150 pounds. And I'm just wondering yep. what you're using. Yep. So, um, I, I shoot 70 pounds. My draw is 29 and a half inches. Uh, my arrow weight is right at 400 and I'm, and it's flying at 321 feet per second, which is 89 pounds of kinetic energy. Now here, here's the point that took me a while to figure out, you know, a decade ago or so, um, everybody's talking about fast bows. Well, I have found out through my setups. Now, this this is going to vary based on 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 bow. So take this with a grain of salt, and I'm going to back it up with why I do it. My whole thought process when I bow hunt is I try to take every element out as much as I can, so I don't have to think. I want everything not to be think; it's just draw and go. So when I say that is, when these bows got to the point that they're so fast, particularly the PSEs, I can't speak for other brands because I don't shoot them, but the PSCs have evolved so much that they're so fast, it allows me to do this, which is I have figured out that at 400 grain arrow, you got to be north. Well, let me backtrack. You got to be north of about 312 to 300 feet per second of your uh, arrow speed for you to go with one pin out to 30 yards. Now you say, why is that important? Well, it's important that when you're inside of timber, in a tree stand, there is no way more, well, not no way, more often than not, you will never shoot a deer outside of 30 yards in the timber because it's too thick, too much cover, brush, all those type of things. It's very rare inside a timber you're going to shoot past 30 yards. 
So reason why I do that is I know that with one pin, I draw and I can go and I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to range about anything. I know I can draw and go. And that has become a huge thing for me is to try to eliminate one more thing to range, to move, to grab a range finder. You know, a long time ago, you always had a pin at 20 yards and you had to climb up your tree, grab your range finder, remember five or six spots in the timber and then range them and remember those in your head of what distance those were. So when a deer came across, you weren't going to move to grab your range finder. So when these, when these, uh, bows got to be faster, I started calculating how fast an arrow had to be for me to be plus or minus 30 yards, zero to 30 and not have to worry about it. Well, it's about 312 to 315 feet per second. You could probably push 310 if you wanted to, depending on how much variable of inches you want to be and how tight you want to be on uh, the high to low. Um, so to me, that was a big deal. And so now, like for instance, um, Major League, his first, his first one, first arrow was at like 35 or 36. The second one was like at 32. And then the last one was like at 47. And then extra innings was shot at 31 so i took those elements out if that makes sense what i'm saying yeah so now with my whitetail setups i always work back from the speed and then try to maximize my arrow weight not for it to fall south of that 3 312 313 speed if i stay north of that or faster i know i'm good a one pin out to to uh, 30 yards like prime example i'm going to alaska hunt um here in september for a moose and grizzly bear with the bow well we have to jump our arrow weight and and um, get it much heavier for penetration because they're so big so we're shooting a 500 grain arrow that thing's pushing it at 280 feet per second or yeah 280 280 instead of 321 is my white cell setup so you're looking at call it 41 feet per second I have to go to 20 yard pin because the 30 yard pin, if I, I set it at 30 and then I went, I was shot it at 20, there's a six to seven inch difference between that with a 280 grain or uh, a 280 feet per second versus 321 feet per second. It's about six or seven inches. That's too much. I can't accept that. So that's the prime example of what I've learned over the years behind the scenes to maximize less thinking when the moment of truth happens. Yeah, that that's a, no, that's a great piece of advice. Uh, that's something I just now started, started understanding because I'm shooting in an Easton FMJ five millimeter now, and man, it weighs 495 grains. And if you judge differently, you know, before it's like if you're shooting a 400 grain or a 390 grain or something like that, it's, mm -hmm. you know, 35 to 45, oh, dang it, a couple inches low. And it's like, for me, I, I just went, six, like you said, six or seven inches lower. So it does, it, you do need a, a more certain degree of accuracy with a, the heavier arrow you're shooting. And it's like, it's all customizable and finding something that works for you. Cause for me, I got really, got really sick of arrow, arrows not penetrating well. And I shot up, shot a buck a couple of years ago and it went in 
to the insert and mm. and it was a decent shot. It just went into the insert and the arrow broke off. And I was like, why? And I watched him walk out with run off with 29 inches of arrow in him. And I was like, this is mm. so I I'm never gonna have that happen again. And these mm. 500 grain arrows, it's like now I'm burying the fletchings through the targets at the range and it's super annoying but i know i know they're gonna do super well come the fall how well uh, what's your poundage that you're pulling i shoot a 30 inch draw and a 70 pound bow so i got a i got a lot of it maxed out i got it maxed out got a long draw length and oh. uh yeah max my bow out so it's it's shooting really really hard oh good for you you got it sound like to me you like your setup so don't change it yeah, no, I'm excited. I only got to kill one deer with it last season. I got it halfway through the season, but yeah, looking forward to it. Hopefully, gonna take it to to smack an elk with in Colorado in September. Oh, good for you. That's my favorite animal to hunt, bar none. There's not even a close second. Really? Oh my gosh! If my wife said you only get to hunt one week a year, what would you choose? I would choose um, September 17th to the 25th every time, and I would go west. That's awesome. Yeah, we're going through the uh, September 1st through the 7th um, in northwest Colorado. We're going Good on a public you. land hunt. Yeah, super excited about it. Yeah, first time, man, oh first God. time. I'll tell you a piece of advice that a friend of mine took me on my first elk hunt many years ago, and he told me, he says, Greg, I don't want you to go. And I said, why is that? His name was Mark, not Mark Drury, another Mark, uh, a friend of mine from Nebraska. And he said, because I know you and how much you love hunting, I'm afraid that you're going to become an, an elk-aholic. And I said, <laughs> really? And after day three, I'm like, you should have never brought me. Right. And it is absolutely the best thing on the planet to hunt, in my opinion. The country is beautiful. It's a glorified turkey. You get interaction. It's the cat and mouse game. You're on your feet. You're moving around, you're calling, they're coming to you, you're adjusting. It is the most entertaining, fun thing to hunt with a bow, in my opinion, bar none, nothing close. Man, that's that's really affirming, and that's also really scary because I already commit so much time to hunting whitetail. Well, I'm telling you, once you go, you're going to look at your wife and go, I'll never miss another September. I guarantee yeah. you. No, that's, not, that's so funny. We were sitting today at work, and... Um, my boss is like, yeah, if you guys, you guys need to give me 10 days notice of before you guys ask to take off. And, uh, I was like, I can tell you right now, I'm going to be gone four days or five days in September, which it'll add up to nine days with the weekends. And so I was like, man, you can just count me out on that non-negotiable. I have to, I, I just have to. So yeah, man, well, we're already at an, at an hour and a half. We're just wow. gonna have to. We're just gonna have to do another episode, I guess. There you go. It's been a fun hour and a half. I didn't realize we're been talking that long. That's just good conversation, I guess. When time goes that fast. Yeah, man. I well, I had a. I had a several more things to talk about. You just have to jump up on the podcast again sometime soon. And we'll we'll wrap it up. I'll be happy to. You just give me the time and the date, and I'll be happy to pick this thing up again. I'll be. I'm honored that you gave me a shout out and um, gave me the opportunity. I, I wish you all the, the best of luck and all your viewers out there. I hope you guys slay the big one this fall if not get outdoors and be safe um it's more about the journey than it is the destination and it's uh it's fun that we have the right to go out there and chase these animals in a very you know um, an amazing country because some of these some places you can't and it's a it's amazing hobby and i wish more people did it and if we can get more people involved because once you get hooked it's it's really tough to shake it's an amazing thing 
Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.